What an incredibly powerful declaration that we as the body of Christ get to make together. And it is hard not to imagine all of the hosts of heaven erupting at the same time as we sing that Christ is risen. I don't know whether they wake up to us singing or we're waking up to them singing, but I know that there is an eternal reality at play in the midst of our gathering, in the midst of us being his church, that as we confess that Christ is risen, we are declaring truth that is eternal, truth that will endure forever, that is more important and more potent than any other truth to have fallen on the ears of mankind, that Jesus Christ is risen. And that ought to wake us every morning and in every moment to the truth and the beauty of how much God loves us. Um, thank you for leading us. Men, I love, I love, there's something happens when Burnsy and Fowler get into a little bit of a thing over here. There's a, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. Um, while we were worshipping, um, the Lord took me um, to Galatians 5, to the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, Gent, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And um, he was just talking to me about gentleness. And he asked me to commend the church on um, our gentleness. Um, and it was just a, a, a beautiful thing just to, to feel the heart of God as we're singing that his arms are wide open, that his, the, the vision I had is of a gentle father whose arms are wide open that has taken root in this community, that there is a community of incredible gentleness for one another, Incredible gentleness toward what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. Incredible gentleness toward God is doing in our young people. Incredible gentleness when it comes to um, just decision making and the changes and all of that that just happen in life and in ministry and being church. And gentleness when it comes to living in a post-COVID world that does look different. There is a gentleness that has taken root that is a fruit of the Spirit, born, I think, even more so from our commitment to unhurrying our lives. Because I think it's really hard to be gentle when you're in a hurry. Um, and so I think that it, in this season of God unhurrying us, he's been um, deepening a gentleness in his church. Um, so be commended. Um, continue on in the fruit of the spirit of gentleness. Very good. Well, if you've been with us the last six weeks, you would know that we have been piecing together a case for pursuing an unhurried life unhurried. We have journeyed through moments of cultural and biblical exegesis that have brought to light the diagnosis of hurry sickness and the prognosis of what living at an ungoverned speed has upon our souls. We've discovered some confronting truth, I know that I have, about what living a fast-paced always on, permanently connected, noisy, always having more to do kind of life has. Truth and implications we've found, or perhaps we've always known, but now they've just come to the fore more prominently that should probably and have scared the pants off us of what living life at unhinged, ungoverned pace does to our very being. At the same time, we've seen the problem and we've heard of the invitation in the midst of all of this. We have basked in the glorious invitation of Jesus to find rest in him, to be intentional about unhurrying our lives. And along the last six weeks, we have unpacked practical ways or spiritual disciplines and practices from the life of Jesus on how to apply the brakes to life and slow down. And it's been a real true gift to not just talk to these things, but also practice this in community. I mean, it was a special time that we had a Sunday off to say, let's actually take a day of Sabbath where we can find a place of worship and joy and delight in the things that bring us joy and delight. 
It was beautiful that we have had the moment of silence and solitude, a whole service of Bredo preaching without saying a word, that together being able to sit in a, a communal space together for complete silence for half an hour and engage with God's word to allow the unhurriedness of the silence be able to speak to our hearts. You know, for some have gone deeper in um, small groups and however you've engaged with this series, my hope for all of us is that we've taken small steps, perhaps even big and audacious steps to become more aware of hurry in our lives and become more proactive in slowing down. And for me, and I hope for you, that this has been a kind of seedbed for ruthlessly eliminating hurry from our lives. And my hope and prayer is that as we draw this series to a close, that the seeds of a slower life will take root in your heart and the fruit of an unhurried existence will burst forth from the limbs of your life. Fruit that will last and also fruit that will be of incredible nourishment to other people. That as you have thought about how life works for you and all of the things that you have on, all the things that you do, all of the things demanding of your time, all of the things demanding of your mental capacity and space and agenda and calendar and to-do list, as we've thought about all of these things and we've invited God into the midst of them, I am praying that that fruit would last and that I would be a recipient of that fruit in this community that as I watch my life continue to you know, spiral at pace, that I can see how Bernie goes about life and go, Bernie, I'm encouraged by how you go, by how you walk, and that that would be replicated over this community, that we would be encouraged by one another and the fruit that God has been um, planting in, or the seeds that he's been planting in our hearts would become a seedbed of blessing for others. Next Sunday, we'll officially wrap this series up in a time of sharing and conversation. It's Car Park Church next Sunday, so we'll be having bacon and eggs outside in the sunshine, and um, we're going to be having conversation, sharing testimony, and so become, come prepared to be encouraged, and also, if you like, to share with others your challenges and your highlights from um, this unhurried series uh, perhaps you might have the courage to share um, what's worked and, and even what hasn't. What has been a, you know, what's been a swing and a miss for you in unhurrying your life from those things we also take courage from one another. Um, and so that's next week. We'll be finishing in testimony on what God has been doing through the last six or seven weeks um, as we've been unhurrying. Righto, let's pray. We're going to dive into the Word. Final part. It's the final countdown to unhurrying our lives. Um, so let's not get too carried away or in a, too much of a rush and invite the Lord in. Mm. Father, we take our time in your presence this morning. Uh, Father, knowing, Lord, that you um, are in no particular rush right now in this moment. Father, you have a word on your heart that you have an encouragement to uh, bring to your church, that you have new revelation for each of us as we sit here under your word this morning. And Father, I pray that it would be a voice of Holy Spirit that speaks profoundly and loudly and clearly. Um, and Father, we would take from this this morning what you want to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I read a timely blog uh, this week and I'm going to share it with you. Every driver benefits from good brakes. It makes driving safer. Only a few skilled drivers benefit from better acceleration. Our habit is to compare top speed, horsepower, short-term returns and status in every field, not just cars. But it probably pays to make sure there are good brakes too. This reminded me of a story about a volunteer firefighting effort. And one day a, a fire started on some grassland by a farm and the local station was called as they do to put this fire out. But the fire grew in intensity and it was more than what this fire station were able to deploy to bring this fire under control. And so someone suggested that a local volunteer crew would be called. 
Despite some doubt that the volunteer effort would be of any assistance, the call was nonetheless made. And the volunteers, they arrived in a dilapidated old fire truck. And as they rolled toward this inferno, they rumbled straight toward the fire. Full of keenness, they drove right into the middle of the flames and they stopped. The firemen jumped off the truck and they frantically grabbed all of the hoses and they just started spraying this thing from the middle of the fire. And soon they had snuffed out the centre of it and broken this fire into two parts that were easily brought under control. And watching all of this, the farmer was so impressed of the efforts of this volunteer fire crew and was so grateful that his farm had been spared that right there on the spot, he presented the volunteers with a check for $1,000. And a local news reporter asked the volunteer fire captain what they planned to do with their funds. That ought to be obvious, he responded, wiping ashes from his coat. The first thing we're going to do is get the brakes fixed on our fire truck. And like this crew of volunteer firefighters, I wonder how often I have fluked not getting burnt in life or by life because my brakes weren't working properly. I mean, this story of this fire is one of good news, perhaps even good luck. It's a story on one hand, you could say of bravery, but it's just dressed up in good fortune. This is an escape by the skin of your teeth kind of moment. In fact, this story could well have ended in disaster. There could have been great loss in this story, loss of people and property incinerated by an inferno, all because the brakes weren't working. And as I think about the cultural exegesis that we've done over the last six weeks, in how we've seen how hurry sickness has pervaded our lives, as we have observed in our own lives, our own inclination toward top speed, towards more grunt, toward quicker returns, and how a life of hurry and busyness is in fact deeply ingrained within us, it is celebrated in our culture and is accepted as the status quo. And I can't help but wonder if our brakes are in good working order if we have the capacity to slow down before we get burnt in or by life. And I say this not to be a a prophet of doom, but as a fellow earthling who also draws breath and has a heartbeat, my experience tells me that invariably in life, we will face our fires. Sometimes they are small spot fires that can be easily doused. And other times there are fires that rage in our hearts and in our lives and in our workplaces and our families that are all-consuming. Fires perhaps of financial difficulty, fires in our family at the moment of sickness, raging little infernos called kids, fires of loss in our lives, fires of grief and of doubt and the fires that burn of uncertainty or family or interpersonal conflict, fires of change, fires of unfiltered busyness, simply having too much to do without enough time to do it, fires in our lives that can erupt without warning, flaring up, biting us on the bum without any whiff of notice. And I want to suggest to us all today, myself included, That unless we have good breaks, the chances of surviving life's inevitable fires are a gamble at best and at worst a tragedy of unnecessary loss in the making. And how, how are your breaks? How are you at slowing down? How are you at having the fortuity, fortuitous thinking, being able to observe perhaps externally to your life and go, actually, I need to take a break. 
I need to do something now in order that when I get there, it will be okay or less bad. Because this is what we've been speaking about, practices in how to slow down, an invitation of Jesus to orient our life around the pace of love, that we would learn to slow down, which is the fourth practice that John Mark Comer gives us in his book that we've been looking at, the practice of slowing. And as we approach this topic, or more accurately, a practice, my hope is that our brakes would get a tune-up, that we would allow our lives to be placed on the hoist, um, you know, those car hoists in the garage, um, that we would park our lives in the hands of Holy Spirit and he would lift our lives up and he'd be able to look and tinker and make some observation, perhaps some, um, give us some tune-ups this morning on our brakes. Because God knows what fires we are rumbling down the road toward. And my belief is that his desire is not that we'd fluke it in these fires of life, but we would be prepared to stop and fight them and be readied with an unhurried heart. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 8. While you're getting there, our next series, we're going to do the book of Mark. We're going to do, I'm not going to tell you how many weeks because I'm not quite sure yet, but maybe the best part of like the next three months will park up in the book of Mark. So we have spoken a lot about patterning our life on Jesus. I think it would be a wonderful thing for us to park up in Mark's gospel and observe at depth, really pull out the, micro, the, the magnifying glass and, 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 and put it over the life of Christ, looking at who he was as Mark tells incredible stories and seeing who he is. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to do that for an extended period of time. And as I was researching, I said this to our, the team during the week. A lot of churches I've seen do the book of Mark. They've done it in between 50 and 70 weeks. We're not going to be doing that. <laughs> we might do 16 or so. I'm looking forward to that. Matthew chapter 8. And before I read, here's a little bit of context. Prior to this moment, Jesus' ministry was climbing through the gears. The beginning chapters of Matthew show us Jesus' life starting off, if you like, in first gear, like the rest of us, at birth. And then we see Jesus' life shifting into second gear as he is baptized and as the Spirit leads him off into the desert, into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then when he returns, we see the momentum of his calling propelling him forward where the Sermon on the Mount took him through third and fourth gear which lands us in chapter 8 where we read of people being healed of leprosy, people suffering paraplegia, getting up and walking, people who had, had fevers being healed, people who were um, experiencing demonic oppression being set free, crowds swelling to hear Jesus speak as news quickly spread across the land. It could be said that Jesus at this point was well and truly moving and shaking down the kingdom highway in fifth gear. He was pedaled to the metal. And I can imagine Jesus on the highway, windows wound down, arm up on the thing, wind blowing through his luscious long locks, cruising in fifth gear in God's call on his life. Things were gathering pace. There was a noticeable building of intensity, an increasing cadence to what was happening around him. And the expectation of who he was and how he was to operate and was operating, the expectation of what other people wanted from him were no doubt acting in Jesus' own life as a foot on the accelerator, where this swelling momentum and the conversation around him and the demands that people were throwing his way were all like, come on, Jesus, meet our needs, do the thing. If you've done it for them, do it for me. And no doubt Jesus would have felt all of those things as a foot on the accelerator of his own life. And not only would the weight and expectation of people hoping he was in fact the promised Messiah being upon him, but I assume things being wary of the religious bigwigs and how they were responding to Jesus. The internal pressure of both Jesus knowing his power and authority 
on one hand, and then on the other hand, how does he use it? And when does he use it? And what does that look like? All while balancing through all that he had to do through his ministry, knowing full well at the end it's going to cost him his life. I mean, for Jesus, there was a lot on his mind. There was a lot of demand for him. And I think sometimes we can take it for granted, but life for Jesus would have been a lot. You're like, yeah, but he was God, Dave. Don't go feeling too poorly for him. Let's not forget, though, that as Paul and Timothy write in Philippians 2, that though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grabbed at. Instead, Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of you and I, living in full human form, experiencing the fullness of the human experience. All of this to say, Jesus was not immune to the pressure, to the reality, and to the temptation of living a busy, overcommitted, always available, hurried life. What we see in Jesus, though, is a sinless, perfect life, never caving to the pressure or temptations. And I want us to see in God's word this morning that Jesus is the exemplar of having extraordinary breaks in a fast-paced life. Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Should start taking some notes on my own preaching here. Get into a boat a little bit more often with friends. Jesus, in this moment, got off the highway. He got out of fifth gear and got into a boat. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus had a sleep. And they went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Are you of little faith? And then he, he rose up and he rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm fell upon the waters. And the men in the boat were gobsmacked. They marveled saying, what sort of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And I want to think about this story just for a few moments this morning. See, what Jesus doesn't do is just as telling as what Jesus did do. As this storm raged around them, as the wind howled, as their boat would have been listing from to and fro, as stuff would have been rolling down the floors as they're grabbing hold of buckets and nets and all of their fishing paraphernalia, as the lightning cracked around them, as the squalls beat down, as they feared for their lives. Jesus doesn't fret. Jesus doesn't panic. Jesus doesn't begin to strategize, pulling out the pen and paper and formulating a game plan for how they're going to get themselves out of this chaos. Jesus doesn't micromanage the situation. He doesn't activate the team. He doesn't hop to and go, righto, James, you do this. Simon, you do that. Peter, you're on this. Bartholomew, you get on the radios. Jesus grabbed a cushion. I should have had one with me. That would have been cool. You can imagine, I'm sure, a cushion. And he, he laid it down in the stern of the boat. He put his head down on the pillow. And in the midst of the chaos, in all of the throes of this storm, it was a fury upon the boat. Jesus takes a nap in the middle of the chaos. 
I was out at sea a couple of weeks ago with some rookies. We had our school trivia night last year and one of the auction items on that trivia night was a day of game fishing um, on our boat, well my dad's boat, I just call it mine, I keep the keys at my house, so it's my boat. <clears throat> anyway, we booked a date in, it didn't work, one of them had to have knee surgery and all that, so we pushed it back, this was just the weekend before uh, Easter. And uh, we headed out through the heads of Port Hacking and I knew that that day the weather at some point was going to turn. And I said to the guys on an email that week, hey, I'm okay to keep going ahead with this, uh, but here's the reality. At some point, there's going to be a 30-knot southerly rip through. It's going to get really wet and it's going to be pretty uncomfortable. If you want to keep going, I'm okay with that, but I'm putting it in your hand to make the call. They wrote back, yep, yeah, sweet, no dramas, all good. And it started out nice enough. We got out about 30 kilometres straight out towards the continental shelf, and it was relatively calm. I thought, oh, maybe, perhaps, the reports aren't going to be as dicey as what they first said. Got to about 9 o'clock in the morning, and as expected, it happened. You could see it brewing down the coast, 30 knots of wind racing right through the middle of us. As soon as that came, the storm front comes over, no lightning and thunder, but there was rain so heavy... I'm not sure if you've ever seen this. So 30 knots of wind, that's like 55 k's an hour wind moving. It's choppy as on the water. The rain was so heavy that it calmed the ocean. There was still 30 knots of wind, but it glassed off completely. An absolutely mind-bending experience to be in the midst of a storm and in rain so hard. The look on the faces of these, these men were turning from smiles of just having caught the biggest fish of their lives to increasing concern for their welfare. <laughs> Especially because what I didn't realise, one of the men on board had just blown out the candles on his 78th birthday. This was no place for a man of his ripe vintage. And not only that, I learnt that they delayed the trip because he was the one who had a double knee replacement six weeks earlier. I looked back at one point and this gentleman was sitting on the seat, hands between his legs, shivering like a man about to die on Everest. And I was playing it cool, but thinking, if I don't get out of here, this guy could well die on my boat. Kid you not. And I can tell you that the last thing on my list of go-to options would have been to announce to these four gentlemen, hey, I know we are in the thick of a pretty raucous storm. If you don't mind, I'm just going to grab a quick 30. Can someone pass me the pillow? I'll just Don't wake me. I'll, I'll be done when I'm done, and then we'll make our way back in. No, but I didn't. I took stock of the situation and thought, no, nah, we are out of here. And pointing the boat westward, feeling like Magellan or feeling like Shackleton, slaying the seas of the Antarctic, I navigated the peaks and the troughs of the swell and we ended up getting our way back into the marina. And I sent the guys on their wet, cold and miserable way, albeit with 10 kilos of fresh caught fish, thanking Jesus that I didn't have to do the paperwork associated with a man dying on board. No less that the guy didn't die. That's what we're thanking Jesus for. But not Jesus, though. In the throes of the storm and in the midst of the chaos... While the disciples were stressing, while their worry was at its peak levels, while the colour had dropped from all of their faces, demanding that Jesus do something, just anything, waking him up. Come on, Jesus, surely we can't just survive this. Come on, Jesus, surely the storm is not your happy place. Surely, Jesus, you've got a better plan than us just writing this thing out. Surely you've just been healing people. You can do this. 
Jesus doesn't rush. Jesus doesn't panic. Jesus doesn't respond to the yelling and screaming that urgency demanded of him. Jesus finds a smelly, bait-soaked cushion, gives them all a sassy smile, and goes to sleep. This is Jesus showing us that slowing down, even when it doesn't make sense, leads to the power of God breaking into the chaos of life. That Jesus does things differently. That how often when the chaos of our life and in our world cause us to fret and to panic and to worry and for the colour to fall out of our faces as the anxiety levels begin to rise, that we get busy hurrying and demanding of God, demanding perhaps of one another, that Jesus shows us that there is another way to confront the chaos of our lives. This is a story that shows that Jesus got breaks. I want breaks like Jesus. I want to be able to have the presence of heart and mind to slow down in the same way that Jesus in this moment slowed down. I want to be able to face the chaos like Jesus did. I want to be able to sleep in the storms of life even when it doesn't make any sense just like Jesus did. I want to be unhurried in the same way that we see in this powerful story that Jesus was unhurried. That when life throws its gnarliest storms, that I want to emulate the pace of Jesus. I want to be able to not fret. I want to be able to not worry. I want to be able to not go pale in the face, to resign myself to the fact that this could be a slow and lonely death in this storm out here at sea, to not succumb to the urgent voices of fear in my life. I want to be able to slow down when every other indicator in my life is saying speed up. I want to be able to nap when everything says work harder and work now. I want to be able to find rest when the squall screams and the sea surges. I want to have the courage, the trust, the confidence and the unanxiousness of Jesus. I loved how Daz shared around this, that I want my life to be a subversive act of resistance against the tyranny of now. That the pace that I walk through life at, my ability to apply the brakes, even when it doesn't make sense. That when chaos erupts, when the bad news hits, when things hit the fan and make a mess everywhere, I want the pace at which I walk and the presence that I have with God and with others to be a subversive act of resistance against the tyranny of now. That when all of those voices are chirping, do something. Get up. Fix the problem. Surely you can do more. Why haven't you done this? That there would be a cadence and rhythm that says, no, there is another way to be human. This, of course, is not easy. <laughs> I'm sure you know it all too well. That slowing down, that having the presence of mind to apply the brakes in our lives is a lifelong journey where we practice. A life of small steps. A life of small wins, of small changes. Albeit peppered with mistakes and stuff-ups and air swings. But this story of Jesus falling asleep in the midst of a storm shows us that when the storms or fires rage in our lives, our hearts need not. That although those things happen, although life is unfair and injustice runs its course, even though we face the proverbial poo soup of life, that like Jesus in the midst of that storm, our hearts need not rush. 
That when chaos arises, when the speed of life, when the speed of decision making, when the speed of what seems urgent screams our name, we can hit the brakes and slow the heck down. Now we can take great courage from Jesus as he shows us what uh, slowing in a storm looks like. And there's just four points here. In the chaos, Jesus was present to the Father. My experience is that hurry keeps us present to the problem and not to God. That hurry keeps us present to the problem, not to God. And that Jesus, I can only imagine that as he lay down with his head on that pillow, that there was a beautiful communion with Father. That as he dozed off, as he was counting the sheep, he's just in this moment of prayer, Father, you are so near and you are so close. And I trust my life and the life of these men on board into your hands. And I can just imagine that Jesus' communion with the Father in that moment as he was present to him and not to the problem afoot is an incredibly powerful way that you and I can approach the chaos in our own lives. That we can take a moment that you don't have to respond to the text message straight away. That when somebody sends you an email that ruffles your feathers, when you get left a voicemail that brings you undone, that you don't have to get straight back onto the other line or onto the email reply or onto the whatever it is, that you can stop. Jesus gives us permission to slow and be present to the Father in the moment where we find ourselves in chaos, to take a deep breath, to lay our head on the cushion and say, Father, I am here. Meet me in the middle of this moment. So don't allow hurry to keep you present to the problem afoot but allow a moment of stopping to lead you into the presence of the Father, to have a rich time of encounter and of communion with the goodness of God as he holds you in his loving arms. Secondly, I can't help but see that in this moment that Jesus' confidence was not in his own ability because he was fully man, at the same time, fully God. But his confidence was not in his own strength, but in the strength of the Father. And hurry keeps our trust in our ability, not God's. A hurried heart says, I've got this. A heart slow to the presence of God says, he has this. And I wonder how many times in my life when I have faced problems of their varying colours, shapes and sizes where I've kind of just doubled down on the efforts. Come on, Dave, you've got this. Or other people have sent me a message, Dave, you've got this. You see, here's the thing. I haven't got this. I'm a broken human being who does not have the answers to my own problems. But God does. And when I place my strength in my capacity to solve the problems or to alleviate the chaos or to find peace in the midst of a storm, I invariably fall flat on my face. And learn the hard way. God is calling us and through Christ he shows us that when we stay confident in God's power and not our own, that just around the corner his power will set us free. Thirdly, in the storm, other people's expectations didn't send him into a spin. See, hurry demands that you respond to the urgent right now and what is important in life is rarely urgent and what seems urgent is rarely important unless of course it's a call a triple o situation in that case it is really important and it is really urgent but quite often in life the things that are of highest importance are in fact the slow burn Great relationships with our kids, with our families, with our friends. I mean, that's not urgent. It's very important. 
And often the things that appear as really urgent in our life. Dave, can you do this now? Hey, can you respond in the next 10 minutes? Do you think we're going to have an answer on this by next week? Rarely are the things that appear to be urgent in our lives actually all that important. They can wait. And so be aware of what is important and what is urgent because they are not one and the same things. Jesus' focus on obedience to God rather than the demands of the disciples and this was him having margin to focus on what matters most. Fourthly, Jesus' authority to calm the storm came from a place of rest. Hurry blinds us to the availability of God's power. That's my experience. And I'd probably suggest that we could find that through the, the scriptures as well. That hurry blinds us to the availability of God's power. Now, I think we mentioned it a while ago when Lazarus had died and Mary and Martha sent word to come and can Jesus come? And he takes three whole days, not in a hurry, not in a rush. They wouldn't have been able to see it in the time their hurry was blinding themselves to the very power of God. When Jesus turns up, having waited, Lazarus is raised from the dead. That hurry blinds us to the availability of God's power. As I read this, it is very difficult for me to not see that Jesus had good breaks. That in the chaos, he was present to God. That he was confident in God's power. That he was free from and of the expectation of others. That he acted with authority over the storm from a place of rest. And I wonder how much of God's power and authority goes wanting in our lives because our breaks aren't in good working order. Is our proclivity to the fast pace, more grunt, go quick, be always available, always on, the to-do list populated, lest we feel like we are unproductive in life? What perhaps are we missing of God's power in our lives? Because we're going too quick. See, good breaks enabled Jesus to be free from worry in this moment. Good breaks enabled him to be an unanxious presence. Good breaks allowed him to be unhitched from the tyranny of now. And good breaks enlivened to the power and authority within him because he simply took a nap. There's a book, can't remember who wrote it, but it's called The Life You Always Wanted. And I had to write heaps of essays on it, and I can't remember his name. But the most important line in that book is one of the most spiritual things you could do right now is take a, take a nap. You know, I wonder how confronting that is to us. I haven't got time, I can't, got to be... One of the most spiritual things that you could do right this very day, and I plan to practice what I'm preaching, (laughs) is to take a nap and slow down. Living an unhurried life requires that we grow in the practice of slowing down, not just reaching for the breaks, but making sure that we have good breaks in the first place. And John Mark Comer, in his book, has 20 ways to slow down. Are you ready? Go home and Google them. Just, just do it. I'm not going to go through them. But just Google John Mark Comer slowing. And I'm sure that there will be a web page there that has all 20 of them. But to do some justice, because we've been following along with his work. There's kind of five categories or things here that perhaps are just helpful to note. He says this, Intentionally place yourself in situations that force you to go slow, like drive the speed limit, choose the long line at the supermarket, or pick the longest line at the red light. Put yourself intentionally in places that cause you to slow down. Show up early to appointments or church um, or events. And don't pull out your phone, chat to somebody, or pray. As best you can, turn your smartphone into a dumb phone and set good boundaries with your use of it. I think what's important, he says, is single task, not multitask. That multitasking is actually a lie. 
we are an embodied human being that can only actually do one thing at a time. And lastly, journal. Cook at home. Do some gardening. These are things that he would say would help slow you down. But I think zooming out more broadly for us as we have gone through this series, that we have at our disposal the practice of Sabbath, where we, every week, find time in that seven-day period, if it works, I get that sometimes it doesn't, to take time where you are disconnected, where you can slow down and be present to the Father, where you can worship Him and find delight. That we have at our disposal the incredible gift of silence and solitude, that we would divert daily, withdraw weekly, abandon annually. That we would have stitched into the rhythms of our lives times where we intentionally withdraw as Jesus did and we would spend time in stark silence and allow God to break in. And last week we looked at simplicity in how not get caught up in the marketing machine of the gospel of more. Have more, be more, be more happy. But rather we would live into the gospel of love that says you are enough just as you are and that Jesus loves you unconditionally and that's a gift called grace. And these are all tools at our disposal to help us ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, to find emotional health and spiritual vitality in a world of chaos and anxiety. And so can I invite you from here on out to still give yourself to the task of ruthlessly eliminating hurry from your life. I'll invite Bretto and the lads back up to lead us. And as I was sitting with this, just curious with God, you know, like why? Where to from here? I think being able to apply the brakes and to rest and to unhurry our lives is one of the most powerful missional tools that God is asking us to take up. In a world that is awash with worry, in a world that is frantically anxious, a world that seeks freedom and healing and peace in either things, experiences, substances, being people who can hit the brakes in the midst of chaos is one of the most powerful witnesses that we can be in our modern day. You know, I believe this, that our lives, as we learn to slow down, as we learn to take the nap in the midst of the chaos, as we place our trust in God, communing with Him in the middle of it all, as we put our trust in His ability, as we don't fall to the tyranny of now and the voices of the urgent, that our lives would be a prophetic voice that our world needs to hear a voice that rises up, a voice that cuts through the piercing noise of hurry and declares just as Jesus did to that storm, peace, be still. With three words that broke into the earth and simmered it. And I believe that they are three words that Jesus is still speaking to us and for us now that perhaps that is the very three words that the Lord wants to speak into your heart this morning. Peace, be still. Let's stand together and ask that God would, in fact, declare these words in our midst. That peace be still in your heart, in your home, in your workplace, in His church, in this church, in the church down the road, in the church worldwide. That peace be still. That the wind and the waves and the chaos and the inclement weather of our culture that is raining down more hurry, more worry, more anxiety. That God's church, His bride would rise up and in our very being we would say, peace be still. Lord, I pray to that end this morning. Father, that peace would reign in our hearts. Father, simmering all of this down, Lord, that we would unhurry our lives to experience more of you, 
to receive the blessings that you have for us. To see your plan at work in our world through your scriptures and through what your spirit is doing. We would see that more clearly. Father, that we would be more attuned to the voice of the Holy Spirit as he nudges us and whispers to us in a still small voice. Father, that in all of this, peace would reign in our lives. That we would have the non-anxious presence of Jesus asleep in our very lives. And Father, I pray for the frustration that can be there when it feels like you are in fact asleep at the wheel. Father, I want to recognize this morning that you being asleep and slow in our lives is actually where you need to be. Father, that as you are intercessing on our part, Lord, I cannot help but see you asleep in the, the back of the boat in my own life, communing with the Father on my behalf, pleading my case before the Father that the wind and the waves in my life would stop, pleading before the Father that I would walk in the power and authority of Jesus' name in the storms in my own life, So, Father, I ask that for every time we feel like you have been asleep at the wheel or disinterested in our situation, Father, you are knocking down the door of heaven on our behalf. And, Father, you are doing so right now and you will continue to do so. Lord, we ask that you would continue to fight for us and fight for your church, that we would not subscribe to the way of the world, that we would not allow the status quo and the story of more and hurry to be the thing that commands us and our activity but the grace and the love and the stillness and the slowness of your kingdom at work would be the story we live by. In all of this, we ask that our lives and your church would glorify your name. For your sake, amen.